Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Danielle Lupton, author of the recent book, Reputation for Resolve, How Leaders Signal Determination in International Politics. Danielle Lupton is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Colgate University. She has published articles in Political Analysis, Political Research Quarterly, International Interactions, and the Journal of Global Security Studies. We spoke to Danielle about how individual world leaders influence international politics, how Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev personally viewed Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy in terms of their resolve and reputation, and what reputational challenges will President Biden most likely face as he begins his new term. Hello, Danielle. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. It's a pleasure to have you. We wanted to congratulate you on your recent book, Reputation for Resolve, How Leaders Signal Determination in International Politics. Tell us what inspired you to write this book. Well, I've always really been interested in understanding how individual world leaders and individual policymakers influence international politics. And so when I was thinking about, you know, major concepts that influence international politics, there's this idea out there that what states have done in the past really influences how they're perceived in the future and influences their foreign policies. And this is what we call reputation. And in particular, there's this idea that one's reputation for resolve, which is um, how tough and firm do I think you are based on your past actions, is really important when states um, interact with each other, particularly during international crises. The idea being that if you have a reputation for being resolute, that you're going to get a much better deal in the end because other states aren't going to challenge you as much or they're going to take your threats more seriously. But given my interest in, in, in world leaders, I was really curious if what if this isn't really a story about states like the United States? What if this is actually a story about um, you know, President Biden or President Trump or President Obama, et cetera, getting their own reputations? And so I just had this like gnawing feeling in my gut that we were missing a really critical part of this story. And so that's what led me to embark on this journey uh, to, to go out and really investigate, you know, do leaders acquire their own reputations? If so, how and, and what factors shape that? So in your research, who were the, the, the main characters that you focused on? So I did, I really did a deep dive into uh, the Cold War. And in particular, I'm, I'm really interested in American foreign policy and relations with the USSR. So I, I did this uh, really intensive historical research on how um, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev uh, viewed um, uh, Presidents uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower and John F. Kennedy in terms of uh, their resolve and their reputations. I'm really looking and seeing like for each of these presidents, how did Khrushchev view them in terms of their toughness and, and seriousness and determination over time and how did that change? And what was really cool about that was that we have, I think, in the, at least in the American national discourse, this idea about kind of this American triumphalism <laughs> during the Cold War. Uh, and, and as well, I, I think particularly um, the legacy of the Kennedy administration is that we have this really, in some ways, rosy, I suppose one could say, um, view of how Kennedy um, handled things like the Berlin crisis and then eventually the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and while ultimately for the United States, those were a, a quote unquote positive outcome, 
the way that Kennedy got there, he actually did things that made his life really difficult. And so what was really interesting for me was to sit down and trace from the very beginning of Kennedy's time in office, you know, what actions did he take? What statements did he make about what he said he was going to do and why he wanted to do those things? For example, like why was Berlin so important to the US um, uh, national interest? Um, and then seeing how Khrushchev responded. And in doing so, what I did was I actually went to um, the archives, including for example, uh, the Eisenhower um, uh, presidential library and the archives there. Um, and it's really amazing to sit down with these original documents, um, these handwritten notes from these really key players, because you realize that these, these what we call great men really were people. Um, it was amazing that some of these historical figures are, are terrible doodlers. Um, <laughs> yeah, in, in these meetings. So, uh, and some of the comments, they really do tell you, you know, in their notepads, what they think about the person who's speaking at that time during that National Security Council meeting, right? Wow. Um, so that, you know, that, that was just really feeling that connection to history with something like, oh yeah, that's right. You know, you hear about Kennedy and, and Eisenhower or Dulles or, or even Khrushchev, right? These, these really big personalities. And then you realize that they were also human beings. Um, and, and, and what I was really surprised by as I was researching my book um, was how much those personal connections, not just between you know, those major players like um, you know, Eisenhower and, and Khrushchev who had a very complicated relationship, so too did Eisenhower and, uh, excuse me, uh, so too did Khrushchev and Kennedy, but the interplay between you know, their national security teams within the United States was just really fascinating and getting to see that unfold on the page and like touch that piece of history. Um, it's just such a, you know, it's almost an electric experience when you when you come across those documents. Wow. Is there one in particular that comes to mind that that you when you saw their notes, for example, that that you're like, wow, that, that, that was, as you said, this electric feeling. Is there one that comes to mind? Well, I just, you know, the, 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 I, I mentioned the doodling before, but um, there's this, I guess one could say more minor character in, in the story on the American side, um, Gerard C. Smith. Um, who was very open in his notes about what he thought about the other people in the in the national security meetings um, and had some very um, interesting <laughs> uh, side doodles. Um, occasionally, uh, you would come across things not just in his notebook, but but others as well that were a bit off color and not suitable for work. Um, you know, which I think all of us in many ways can relate to. Um, you know, I know sometimes I, I, you know, will doodle to actually keep my attention um, going, uh, you know, and, and so there was just, there's just something so incredibly um, human, humanizing um, about that as they're, of course, discussing things like the Formosa crisis or what, what other scholars call the Taiwan Straits crisis, you know, they're talking about, you know, what, what are we going to do about the Cuban, about the Cuban Missile Crisis and they're doodling. And there's something about that that I just found so wonderfully, um, I don't know, humanizing. Yeah, that, <laughs> if makes, that makes sense. sense. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Even though it's historical and it's history, that, that there's real characters involved here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's another thing that I thought was, was really interesting, if I may, Jonathan, was um, the other thing I thought was really cool about this was um, I know that I, growing up, so I'm, a, I'm an American, you know, growing up in all American schools, you definitely get this, the way we talk about specific Soviet leaders, there's definitely, you know, kind of, kind of like this national discourse behind who these Soviet leaders were. Um, Khrushchev in particular, I think, holds a very um, uh, important place in the, in the way that, you know, we educate particularly high schoolers, et cetera, about 
US uh, foreign relations with the Soviets. And um, what I thought was really interesting was seeing some of these you know, transcripts of, of meetings um, with Khrushchev. And that doesn't always match, you know, the, the personality he has on the page doesn't always match the personality I think that we're sometimes you know, told in kind of this national, national mythology about these people. Um, and the other thing that I thought was really interesting about Khrushchev in particular was that his memoirs are a very different accounting, you know, this hindsight 2020 than what he's saying at the time. And so for me, I thought that was, you know, we've always been warned when you do historiography or um, qualitative research, just from a more of a um, scholarly perspective, you know, that memoirs are maybe a bit, uh, can be a bit dubious. They're a bit of rewriting of history, but certainly in Khrushchev's case, I really found that to be um, really spot on. He really does go back and, you know, and, and what he says at the time contemporarily does not match what he later says he felt, which I thought was really fascinating. And I think is also a, a very human thing as well. Interesting, interesting. So with this deep dive, how do you hope your book will make an impact in your field? So in international relations, um, which is my primary home, home field, and, and, and I suppose in political science as well, more broadly, um, there's really been this longstanding debate or discourse over whether reputations in general actually matter. And we've had these very vocal, what I call in the book, reputation skeptics, who say that no, reputations don't matter. So basically what you as a state primarily, but as a general actor out there in international politics have done in the past doesn't really influence how people see you because, well, excuse me, when I say people, I mean other actors, right? Um, how others see you because uh, they're not gonna focus on what you did in the past. They're gonna focus on um, other things that matter right there in that particular situation or crisis. And so for the past, oh gosh, um, at least 20 years, if, if not further <laughs> back, um, uh, actually 30, 30 years <laughs> really, um, we've been having this ongoing debate where you have people who are arguing it does matter and people who argue that it doesn't. And what I hope my book does is that it pushes this, this discourse forward uh, because what my book shows is that yes, reputations do matter, but we've been looking in the wrong place for reputations to form. It's not about the reputations of states like the United States, it's actually the reputations of these individual policymakers or individual leaders that are really important. And the other thing I show in the book is that all those factors that those reputation skeptics say are most important for reputation, I actually take those into account, um, both in my historical analysis and also in, in the survey experiments that I do in the book. And I show that even accounting for those factors that these reputations still matter. So kind of more broadly in the field, I, I hope that it really um, you know, pushes that, that research forward. Um, but this also has really important policy implications for how we think about um, how world leaders should respond to international crises and events. So I think, for example, here about Obama and Syria, right? There was this huge debate um, uh, in the broader you know, foreign policy discussion about how did Obama perform? <laughs> did he follow up with his red line? Does it even matter? Or why do we care? Right? I hope that my book also speaks to that. And that's one thing that I really do try to do in the book is integrate these policy implications, not only in the conclusions, but throughout the book. Um, and there's one other thing that I really hope my book does more broadly. And that is that I, I really hope that it, can, it, it solidifies this, this discourse that individuals matter. Um, again, this is something that I think we as, um, just people interacting in the world think matter, right? So if you think about presidential elections, does it matter if Trump wins versus Biden? I would say absolutely, right? But the way traditionally that uh, political science um, discourse has thought about this, it, 
the majority of scholarship out there for a very long time has argued that no other things are more important. Um, and so I really hope that my work further solidifies the wonderful work um, that is already out there that further demonstrates how much these individual world leaders are really important, um, not just to foreign policy, but also to broader patterns of international conflict and just international security writ large. Interesting. Well, you bring up the whole notion of individual actors versus the state, and you mentioned Trump versus Biden. We've had a pretty tumultuous, uh, <laughs> at least even this, even this, let's just erase the past four years, this, this past month and a half. Or so. Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, what do you see as the challenges or what, what are the headlines that you that pop out for you, given your knowledge and expertise? What do, what do you see are the challenges and characteristics of President Biden? So I think that one thing that Biden um, is, is on the right track on absolutely is really this notion of restoring American credibility. Um, it's absolutely no secret that the Trump administration undermined um, uh, American credibility through, um, through a variety of functions, most notably uh, their withdrawal from national agreements, their signaling to alliance partners that they, they were no longer going to be committed uh, to, to the alliance. Um, but also Trump had a, had a bit of a habit I would say not always, to be fair, not always, um, but uh, he, he did have a little bit of a habit of making these really strong, uh, what I would call bombastic or, or, or blustery statements um, uh, using really strong emotional rhetoric. I think for example, the fire and fury uh, comment, right? Um, and then not always adequately following through on that. Um, so I think that the Biden administration is right to focus on restoring American credibility. However, what my work shows and what my book shows in particular is that it is not so easy as just saying, we, re we reaffirm American alliances, <laughs> right? Um, what my book shows is that Biden's going to have an incredibly narrow time window in which to do this. Um, what I find in the book is that new leaders do establish reputations uh, that are separate from their states and separate from their predecessors, which is good news for Biden. He is not bound by Trump's reputation or um, by the uh, rhetorical choices that Trump made. The problem, however, is that what it's gonna take from Biden is really clear, consistent rhetoric and also clear policy agendas. And not just in terms of, we wanna restore American credibility, but explicitly saying how he's going to do that. So for example, Kennedy, um, kind of talked big on what he wanted for Berlin, but did not make it clear how he was gonna make that happen. And that really came back a little bit to bite him because what that signaled was that he didn't really know how he was gonna do it and that he wasn't really prepared. And so what I would like to see from the Biden administration, I know it's very early, right? And there's lots on the agenda, including a global pandemic. <laughs> but what I would like to see from the Biden administration, um, now that his cabinet uh, is getting confirmed and is really getting settled, is a bit more you know, nuanced in discussion about how are you going to restore American credibility with Europe, right? What is, this, what is the, the rhetoric of America is back? Well, what does that mean for European alliance partners, right? How are we gonna do this and how are we gonna integrate that? I think is gonna be really important for the Biden administration moving forward. And of course, Biden's going to need to very clearly follow through on this, you know, these broader promises with concrete policy action and do that rather quickly. I think that we tend to think about the fact that, well, you know, campaign promises, those are for domestic audiences, international audiences like Putin or whoever, right? They must realize those are for domestic audiences, right? Yeah, they, 
no, actually, what I find in my book is that Khrushchev used Kennedy's campaign promises as a signal of what he was going to do in the future. And when Kennedy didn't follow through on those campaign promises, it actually undermined his reputation. Um, this, I actually, uh, a few years ago, um, uh, before the book came out, I actually wrote a piece for foreignpolicy.com with uh, Peter Fever on this, on this particular issue. Um, and so I think there is this tendency, particularly on the campaign trail, to make these big promises with the assumption that, well, we all know that, you know, candidates overpromise. Well, the domestic public might quote unquote know that, but international observers, outside observers, they're actually listening. <laughs> so there is kind of this tension between when leaders make these promises for domestic audiences, they have to recognize that those have international audience costs as well. It's gonna be really interesting to see how the Biden administration um, follows through on this really, I think, important and lofty agenda that they've put forth. And they do have a really difficult task here of, um, of you know, rebuilding uh, America in, in so many ways. And I'm glad they're doing that. I mean, I'm glad that they're making that front and center. Um, I will be eagerly awaiting to see how the actual policy develops, uh, particularly in the first hundred days here. Yeah, yeah, same here. But those are yeah. great insights. I never really thought about it that the, the public is a, maybe a little bit more jaded than, than uh, the politicians uh, and leaders overseas who take these things more seriously and or literally, they take them literally where we maybe take them more figuratively that they're just uh, you know campaign promises that will be broken once they get in. But uh, that's- Yeah, that's, that's another area for future research that I, I think would be really fruitful for anyone out there listening. <laughs> Cool. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you, Danielle, and congratulations again on your recent book, Reputation for Resolve, How Leaders Signal Determination in International Politics. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It was a real pleasure. All right. Thank you. That was Danielle Lupton, author of the recent book, Reputation for Resolve, How Leaders Signal Determination in International Politics. Follow Danielle on Twitter at at Prof Lupton or on her website at daniellelupton.com. If you'd like to purchase Danielle's book, use the promo code 09POD to save 30%. Visit our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSANNOUNCE and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.